I'm starting a, a new series today, a short series, on a subject that will be relevant to every one of you in the church. The subject is relationships. And over the course of this series, you'll hear from me, you'll hear from other people as well, about different kinds of relationships, particularly focusing on marriage and also on singleness. And these are big areas. We won't be able to do them justice, you know, in the time that we have, but hopefully these talks will give you an overview of what we understand the Bible's perspective to be on relationships. And today, I'm going to begin by focusing on marriage and I'll also, in the process, touch on divorce. Now, if you find some things I say today helpful, then it may well be that I got those parts from Debbie, who uh, helped me put the elements of this talk together. I take personal responsibility for any of the less helpful bits. Now, we're very aware that this subject will inevitably touch on some very tender places for some of you. And as careful as I or others might be in phrasing what we say, we do run the risk of offending some of you. And so I just want to ask your forgiveness before we even begin. That's a high likelihood. I can't get it all right for everybody. Some of you will be single or married or separated, divorced, widowed, and you're okay in that place right now. But I'm aware that there will be some of you who are currently in a place of pain. There are those of you who are not married and some of you long to be. Some who have been married and have lost their spouse, spouse through death or through separation or through divorce. Some of you are married but you're experiencing such difficulties within your relationship right now that you may be wishing you weren't married. And others of you may be in other forms of committed relationships and you're not currently married. The last thing we want to do is come across as judgmental. There's no place for that in this church. You may be in a marriage which is falling apart. You don't see a way through. I'm not wanting to exacerbate your pain. There are those of you who are divorced, either because you were the one who contributed most to that happening or your spouse was, and we acknowledge that that is extremely painful. There may be some of you who are in other forms of relationships. You may be living together. You may be in a civil partnership or a marriage which is recognized by British law but which differs from the way the Bible understands marriage. What I'm not trying to do is make people feel bad or in any way not welcome here. Everybody, let me say that really clearly, everybody is welcome. My responsibility is to put forward what the Bible teaches, to put forward today what biblical marriage is, what, what is God's best for human flourishing. And historically, Christians have not often been known for judgmentalism rather than understanding and compassion. And so our desire is just the opposite of that, that throughout this series, you will know that we are for you, that though we won't understand what you're going through, we recognize that many of you will be facing challenges that we haven't experienced. We can only imagine how tough they are. And if you're in a difficult place right now, our desire is that you would know that God is with you, he is passionately committed to leading you through to a better place uh, wherever you currently find yourself. So today I want to focus on the relationship of marriage. When I say the word marriage, I wonder what picture that connotes in your mind. What comes to your mind? Is it perhaps something like this? Or this? Or nothing's coming up yet, is it? So <laughs> a picture of me, does that? 
Well, wait just a little. To see. There we go. There's the one option. Does it connote that? Or perhaps this, sadly, or something like this? Or what about this? See what's going on in there. It's, it's fascinating <laughs> to see how the Bible views marriage. Marriage is not for everyone. Many people are single, whether out of choice or out of circumstance. For both married people and single people, there is a freedom which comes with each state, but there is also a cost. And it's important to say that being married is not God's ideal. It is not something which makes a person complete. We are complete whether or not we get married. But it is something which can be a huge blessing to those who embark on it and a huge blessing to society as a whole. Now, if you were to do a who wants to be a millionaire quiz question on why did God create marriage, what would you say your answer was? Why did God create it? And some reasons might pop into your mind. Some of those can be found in the Bible. But you may be surprised at what I've come to understand to be the primary reason that God created marriage. And so let's look at three reasons that we find in the Scriptures before I tell you what I believe is the paramount reason. Firstly, it is biblical to say that one reason God created marriage is because the lifelong union of a man and a woman is for procreation. The Anglican prayer book used at the royal wedding of Will and Kate, it's the series one of the Anglican prayer book, says this, first, it was ordained for the increase of mankind according to the will of God and that children might be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord to the praise of his holy name. In the Bible here, the very first chapter, Genesis 1, 27, it says this, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. He created humankind, male and female, and he commanded them to go and be fruitful. He created two different sexes and their sexual union has the potential to create more people in God's image. Now there are of course more ways to be fruitful than having children. You may be married and actually childless because uh, you're having difficulty conceiving. It may be that you're not married and children is not an option for you, but you don't have to be married to have a fruitful life. I think of people like Mother Teresa, John Stott, my dear friend Mike Pilavacci, none of whom have been married, people through whom countless people have found faith in Jesus, have been born spiritually. So that's one reason that God created marriage, for procreation. The order of service continues then. Secondly, it was ordained in order that the natural instincts and affections implanted by God should be hallowed and directed aright that those who are called of God to this holy estate should continue therein in pureness of living. So the natural instincts and affections which God has implanted refers, of course, to a person's sex drive. And one of the reasons God created marriage was so that the expression of a person's sex drive might be, to quote here, directed aright or appropriately expressed within the confines of a lifelong committed relationship where it belongs, where God designed sex to be, and indeed where it works best. Thirdly, it's biblical to suggest that God created marriage because it fulfills the need for companionship. In just uh, the following chapter, 2, verse 18 of Genesis, the Lord God said, 
It's not good. He just created Adam. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that passage goes on to recount God creating the first woman and then describing what we know as marriage in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So for Adam and Eve, our first parents, marriage met the need for companionship. And so the order of service then says this. Thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and in adversity. Companionship in good times and bad. But of course, that need is not just met in marriage. Uh, through their offspring, many kinds of companionship relationships were made possible. Now we have relationships between brothers and sisters, between grandparents, grandchildren, between friends of both sexes right across society. Companionship is now possible without finding one person of the opposite sex and marrying them. Marriage is not to be the be-all and end-all of companionship. So what other picture does the Bible give us about God's reason for creating us, male and female, and ordaining marriage as his plan for joining the two sexes together. Ed Shaw, uh, who is somebody I've met and like very much, has written a book. It's called The Plausibility Problem, subtitled The Church and Same-Sex Attraction. Ed is a pastor in Bristol. He experiences same-sex attraction himself. And because of his view of Scripture, he has chosen to be celibate. And we've got some copies of this on the bookstall if you're interested. And he has a very helpful website. It's designed for people, uh, especially Christians, who experience same-sex attraction, which I would recommend. It's called livingout.org. And on there, you can watch him tell his own personal story, which I did the other day. If you or your loved ones are same-sex attracted, then I would recommend it to you as an excellent resource. Now, though I've not read the whole of this book, I do love what he writes on the subject of marriage. He takes a look at why God made us male and female and why marriage between a man and a woman is so important. And answering our question, why did God create marriage, Ed focuses on the sexual relationship within marriage, and he writes this. The Bible's overwhelmingly convincing answer is this, to help us grasp the passionate nature of God's love for his people. God created the two sexes and sex in this world as a trailer for life in the world to come. To help us understand the power of his love for us in the here and now and the pleasure that will be ours when we live with him in his new heaven and earth. As film directors put romantic scenes in their trailers to make us want to go to their movies, God has put sex on this planet to make us want to go to heaven. Interesting. <laughs> the theme of marriage is so prominent throughout the narrative of Scripture. At the beginning of the story, we have the marriage of a man and a woman and its consummation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Then at the very end of the story, the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21-22, we have the marriage of the groom, of a groom to his bride and its consummation, like bookends to the whole story. And the human marriages throughout the story point us to how how things will end with this never-ending marriage of the divine bridegroom, which is God in Christ, 
to his chosen human bride, which is the church, God's people. So returning to Will and Kate's order of service, the Archbishop of Canterbury's opening words at that service were these. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God himself, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church. That's the primary purpose of marriage. Marriage is created by God to signify the union between Christ and his church. If you read Tim Keller, if you read C.S. Lewis, they're all agreeing with this point. And when we look at this with that in mind, we see pointers all the way through the Bible. This basically is a love story. It talks a lot about God's passion for us, his covenant love for us, his faithfulness to us, even when we might not be so faithful in our love for him. In Ezekiel 16, God describes in a very graphic way his people's unfaithfulness to him, and he likens it to marriage and adultery, that they have betrayed him. In Hosea, God calls a prophet to actually live out this reality by marrying an unfaithful woman, but continuing in constant love for her despite her sleeping with other men. God's trying to provoke a response to help his people understand the effect of their sin, the pain that it brings him. He's using this language to explain the pain of a jilted lover. In the Bible book, Song of Songs, we have a description written by Solomon of the beauty and the love between him and his wife, which celebrates sex as a wonderful part of God's creation. You know, some people think God is rather prudish about sex. That is absolutely not the case. God created sex. He is very creative as a designer, and it works really well. That is absolutely not the case that he's prudish about it. He has a very, very high view of it. And there's also a second layer to this book's application, Song of Songs. It paints a picture of the beauty and the depth of relationship that God wants to have with every one of us. Not a physical sexual relationship, but taking that metaphorically to talk about the incredible intimacy and indeed the ecstasy of that relationship in its fullness. The Bible paints a picture of marriage which actually is so inclusive it points repeatedly to the relationship that we, his people, have with him and the potential for that into the future. And then in the New Testament, we find John the Baptist, as he talks about Jesus, he uses the word bridegroom. The bridegroom has arrived, is predicting the end of time there. And then Jesus himself, a number of times in the Gospels, refers to himself as the bridegroom. In a chapter giving instructions about how wives and husbands should treat each other, the Apostle Paul quotes Moses' reference from Genesis to the two becoming one flesh. And then in Ephesians 5 verse 32 it says this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. If you read Ephesians 5, you find that he's, he's moving from a man and a wife to Christ and the church and back and forth as he opens up that illustration. The marriage relationship is a picture 
of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And then finally, as we've said in the last few chapters of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation, we see the culmination of this story, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus is marrying his bride, God's people, throughout history. The consummation of all God's loving plans and purposes for his people, the great wedding that all the others have been pointing towards. New Testament scholar Tom Wright wrote this, the last scene in the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth, and the symbol for that is the marriage of Christ and his church. It's not just one or two verses here and there which says this or that. It's an entire narrative which works with this complementarity so that a male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and new earth. Marriage between a man and a woman, between two people who are essentially different, as we are different to, to God, to Christ, is central to the very wiring of God's plan for the universe from its beginning and into eternity. And marriage, as is referred to there, is designed to be a permanent union, just as God's relationship with us is one of permanent commitment. But that's hard. As we change gear now and move from the conceptual, I've given you a bit of a theological background biblically there, to the more practical, we know that is hard. To be joined to the same person for life throws up all sorts of issues. Part of the power, as well as the mystery of marriage, the way God intends it, is that it involves two people of different sexes, two people who see things from very different points of view, very different angles. They respond to things in very different ways. On my shelf, I have a number of books on relationships which seek to help the reader understand the opposite sex. Some of them are very amusing, and I couldn't possibly tell you the titles uh, because you might think I affirm everything they say. But some of them, you know, they, many of them stereotype the sexes, talk about evolution and why men do this and women do this. But actually, I find them pretty helpful uh, in explaining my wife Debbie to me when I can't understand her. And, uh, and many of you will have heard of John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. We're from two different planets, and we think different ways. And as I say, he could rightly be accused, probably, of making sweeping statements about the genders. But allowing for that, he's pretty perceptive about Debbie and me. I'm a, I am actually from Mars. I am a male, and I pretty much fit all the stereotypes that uh, he might uh, try and paint me into. I found his insights actually very helpful. Marriage is challenging because of the gender differences, but it's also challenging because both parties are far from perfect. If we get married, the person we marry is, like each of us, a broken and sinful individual who inevitably, just like us, is going to be hard to live with. So that permanent commitment sometimes turns out not to be so permanent. The Guardian many years ago stated this, that some lucky souls sustain an intimate marriage relationship for 20 years or more, but the natural time limit is more like four years. Once it's gone, the article says, nothing on earth will bring back that magic spark. You either feel it or you don't, and that's the end of the matter. In an attempt at consolation, the article ended with this, it can always be rekindled for somebody new. 
Now, there's some truth in what The Guardian is saying, and there's some false stuff as well. It's true that a relationship goes through stages. Romance can be followed by disillusionment. Now, that is normal. It's actually quite healthy. Disillusionment is the dismantling of illusions, and living in illusions is not going to be long-term healthy for anybody. Initially, a person in love will often see their partner through rose-tinted spectacles, readily overlooking the parts that are not so wonderful and their view being filled with the parts that are wonderful. This is a natural phenomenon. It draws people together. And there are all sorts of positive hormones which are in play in the early stages of a relationship which fade over time. Hormones and feelings which can spring into life again with someone new. And in that, the Guardian article's right. A new relationship offers romance again, which can appear more attractive than working through disillusionment. But here's the truth. It is only through working through disillusionment that a relationship can come to a place of fulfillment. So healthy, it's a helpful little cycle to remember, and it applies to anything new. A new possession, a new car, a new job, a new relationship, romance, disillusionment, fulfillment. What some people do is they enter the romance, then the disillusionment, they quit that and go looking for romance again. And they enter a cycle of romance and disillusionment that goes on and on and never reaches fulfillment. The only way through is to stay with that which you're with, that job, that, that person, and work through it. The Guardian article is absolutely wrong in its assertion that nothing on earth will bring back that magic spark. You either feel it or you don't, and that's the end of the matter. The grass may look greener on the other side of the fence, but if you are ever tempted to bail on your marriage in favor of someone else, listen to this, listen carefully to this. The grass on the other side of the fence, if it does look much better than the grass on your side, is probably astroturf. <laughs> it isn't reality. And if you were to cross to the other side of the fence to explore that, you would soon find out. The most important thing to realize in a relationship is this, that the grass is greener where you water it. That magic spark may feel very different from the initial romantic stage of a relationship, but it's fanned into flame by investing in the relationship, by continuing to romance one's partner, by not allowing the passage of time to lead to the natural tendency to take the other for granted. A great married relationship is possible, but it takes care and attention. Now, Jesus was really serious about marriage, and in Mark 10, Beginning at verse 6, he's answering a question about divorce, and he said this. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's there quoting Genesis. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When a man and woman get married, they make solemn vows to one another in the presence of many witnesses. They join hands. That last phrase is then quoted by the minister. What God has joined together, let no one separate. It's a public recognition that this couple are no longer two, 
but one. They've become one. During the years I spent as a jeweler, I made a number of wedding rings for many, many people, uh, some of which had two colors of gold in them, including my wife Debbie's, yellow gold and white gold. Now, I didn't make this one, but it illustrates well the taking of two rings and joining them together. There are a couple of ways of making a ring like this, but this is one. The jeweler will first make two rings, one of yellow gold, one of white gold, and then he or she will put them together and heat them up to nearly 1,000 degrees centigrade with pieces of gold solder laid around the joint. And just before the gold melts, the solder melts and runs through the joint. And once joined, the joint is as strong as each of the rings. There is no breaking it apart. It has become one piece of metal. And that's a picture, quite a helpful picture, because it's basically a wedding ring, of what happens when two people get married. Two become one. God takes two separate things and makes them one. He takes two lives, two circles, two worlds, two futures, and he's saying from now on, this day forward, you are one. The mathematics of this is quite interesting because it's not addition. This equation is not half plus half equals one. Okay? It's not two incomplete people becoming completed with the other. Rather, it's multiplication. It is one times one equals one. It's two complete people who may otherwise have remained single and complete, whose lives become joined together to create something new, something richer than was the case when they were not joined together. And what's begun on the couple's wedding day is worked out over the rest of their lives, living out the reality of what it means to be one. And that's actually quite hard. Living in the closest of relationships with another imperfect human being is going to mean conflict. Debbie and I have conflict most days, probably. Certainly every week we will be a number of times having conflict about something. Some conflict, you know, is good because we are imperfect human beings. We've got rough edges, we've got spiky bits and all that. And the hope is, within marriage, that as you rub together two jaggedy things, you become smoother, you hopefully become a more rounded person in the process. And I guess most of us can think of at least one couple in their old age who've been married for many decades and who just seem to fit together beautifully. Two frail people who have learned patience and understanding and forgiveness and who've grown in grace as they've pressed through the challenges that life has uh, thrown at them. I read a tweet from Nicky Gumbel this afternoon which said, the best love language is self-denial. They've learned that. This is not about what I can get out of this relationship, it's what I can give to it and how I can bless my partner. Now, we also know that not every marriage is like that. The most recent statistic I could find tells us that in England and Wales, 42% of marriages end in divorce. Now, however one views that statistic, and there are probably ways of interrogating it and reducing that, nevertheless, it's a reality that we're all too aware of, that many marriages don't make it for the long haul. I'm aware that a number of you here have gone through divorce, and I don't want you to hear anything in what I'm saying, anything at all of judgment, but rather of grace and of hope. 
Some have to shoulder the main responsibility for their marriage ending. Others are victims of their partner's behavior, and they deserve nothing but compassion. And every single case of divorce has to be viewed in the light of its own unique circumstances. There are biblical grounds for divorce. When one partner breaks the marriage vows to such an extent that the relationship is utterly beyond repair through things like violence, other forms of abuse, neglect, adultery, it can destroy a marriage. And separation would be a first step with a view to things getting sorted out and restoration sought, but ultimately, having gone through all that, the signing of divorce papers, in my opinion, is not the issue. That last resort is the recognition that the marriage has been irreparably broken and is over. Jesus spoke really strongly about divorce, and his consistent counsel was this, don't do it. Don't get divorced. Why? Because he would rather have us obey his rules than enjoy life? No, because he loves us, and he knows the damage it does to the individuals involved, their children, if they have any, and to society as a whole. So where does that leave those who have been divorced? Feeling the condemnation of the Lord for the rest of their life? Experiencing the disapproval of people, especially church people, and the fear that if they married again, that marriage would be outside of God's will? No. I believe a very helpful parallel is what God said to Adam and Eve right there in the beginning of Genesis. He said, don't eat from this tree. If you do, the consequences are going to be bad, really bad. Don't do it. But they went ahead, as you know, and they ate the fruit. There were serious consequences. But God in his grace had already worked out a way things could be restored. He paid the price so that there could be another chance. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. That's grace. That's what we, the church, are to show people who don't live up to the Lord's commands. That's what he shows to every one of us who fail to live up to God's best for us. And so not one of us can sit in judgment of another. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's standards, and we are all saved by grace. While the wounds of going against God's commands may not be healed in this life, God is passionately committed to second chances and third chances, and fourth chances. And I personally, as a sinner, am really glad about that. Jesus said, don't get divorced, because he knew the effect of it, especially in that culture where it would often leave a woman in dire straits. But whatever, at whatever time in history and however the issues of one partner being thrown into poverty have been addressed, Jesus knew the devastating effects of divorce, and he doesn't want anyone to go through it. As I mentioned earlier in Mark 10, Jesus said the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They're no longer two, but one. God has joined people together. If you take two sheets of paper, two individuals, and you join them together with glue, they become one piece of paper. Now, if you then try to part them and undo this two becoming one, you find this is what happens. The tearing of both those people. 
they both get torn in the process. Ending a marriage is not like ending a business relationship, shaking hands and going in two different directions. It's not unconsciously, or sorry, consciously uncoupling, as singer Chris Martin and actress Gwyneth Paltrow famously described uh, last year, their own relationship as it came undone. If a marriage was a truly biblical marriage, they truly were one. There is always tearing involved. I had a look online this week at divorce parties and divorce cards. Their thrust being, I'm so glad to be rid of that idiot, celebrate with me. And this is becoming big business. It's just proliferating uh, on the internet there. Celebrate my divorce with me. But as much as people want to make light of the breaking up of a marriage, no matter how challenging that relationship was, pulling two people who have been married apart is a tearing experience. And if it isn't, then it would suggest that it wasn't really a marriage, certainly not in the way God intended it to be. It may be two people living together with a convenient lifestyle, but a true joining of two people becoming one involves tearing when it comes apart. Again, please don't hear me saying that there are no biblical grounds for divorce. There are. What I'm saying is that until and unless every attempt to rebuild a torn marriage is exhausted, don't even think about it. Uh, go into marriage refusing to even uh, entertain the possibility that it could end in divorce. When you decide to marry someone, it's for life. It's a permanent covenant relationship. In our marriage, Debbie and I have never allowed the word divorce to enter our thoughts, let alone our conversation. From day one, it was banned. We were never considered divorce. And that means you've got less places to go. There is no quitting. So when we face challenges, as we have over the years in our relationship, well, that's not even to be entertained. We have to work it out. And I got this from my parents, so she got it from hers. We've, we have the privilege of uh, our heritage there in seeing married relationships that have been faithful and uh, sustained. My parents have been married for over 60 years, and to be honest, they have had their share of challenges. As tempted as they might have been at times to give in to those challenges, they maintained that divorce was just not an option. And so they just had to work through those challenges. They made a covenant before God, and I applaud them for being faithful to that. That conviction, we could never get divorced, will drive you to work at your marriage because it's not an option. If it is an option, and some people go into it and they sign a prenuptial agreement, well, if this comes apart, we'll do thus and so, it paves the way for that being one of the options. If you close it off, then it's almost certainly never going to happen because you'll be so committed. We've got to work it out. There's nothing else we can do. The good news is that God is in the gluing business. Even torn relationships can be re-glued with his help and with the help of others, such as professional marriage counselors and friends who can pray with you and walk with you. For those of you who are divorced, we understand that it happens. If you're divorced, you don't need us to heap condemnation on you. You need a church to support you as the tears get healed. 
God sees your pain, he sees the hurt, his arms are outstretched with compassion towards you and his heart breaks with yours. So we've looked at some of the reasons God created marriage. We've said that the main point of marriage is to help us grasp the passionate nature of God's love for his people. And that reality is not only for those who are married. We're all part of the eternal significance of Christ and his bride. Everybody gets to participate in this. Now, I've led many wedding services. I've led them in this room, and I've led them all over the country. And one of the the sweetest moments in a wedding is when the bride comes in, usually on the arm of her father, all dressed beautifully, comes in. And instead of just looking at the bride, it's fascinating to look at the groom, who turns at that point to see his beautiful, you know, the most beautiful she's been, he's ever seen her, walking towards him. And this is about to be, you know, come together and ultimately consummated. And the look on his face is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And you know, the way a groom looks at a bride as she walks down the aisle towards him on their wedding day, that is just a tiny reflection of how it is between God and you. God looks at us and says, you have no idea how much I love you. You and me, his bride, his beloved. God pursues us. He chases us because he loves us. He loves us too much to ever leave us alone. And as we sang earlier, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. That's profound. That is, he's faithful ultimately all the way through. Not every marriage partner is. We, in our brokenness, try to be faithful in the covenant relationship with him, but his love never fails. It never gives up. He never runs out on us. Whether we are married or not, God's ultimate reason for marriage is a wonderful truth to keep in our minds. It should point us towards Jesus. Ed Shaw, who we heard from at the beginning, said this, wrote this. I have most grasped God's love for me when I've seen it in terms of a man's love for his wife. When I've read passages like Ezekiel 16 and felt the full passion of his love for me. My sexuality has allowed me to understand and appreciate the incredible power of the sexual language that God uses there and elsewhere to communicate the passionate nature of his love for people like me. My sexuality, he writes, might not lead me into a loving marriage, but it does consistently lead me into a greater appreciation of God's love for me in Christ. That is one of the many reasons why I'm profoundly grateful for it. As we truly understand and grasp God's intention that marriage is a picture of his love for every one of us, his passionate love for you and me, his faithfulness despite our shortcomings and our failures, the appropriate response is profound gratitude for it. Whether or not we're married, whether or not we are happy as a single person or as a married person, it is important that we champion marriage. As we look around this room at the married couples who are faithfully hanging in there, working at their relationships, we want to encourage them, we want to do all we can to strengthen them, we want to pray for them, we want to celebrate with them. They are holding up to the world a model which is so under threat in our society today, a model which demonstrates the most profound truth in the universe, that God 
passionately loves the world. And those who say yes to Jesus are destined for an eternity of perfect intimacy with Him, which will cause the struggles of this life to fade into insignificance. Yesterday, in this room, a couple were married. And the wedding service was conducted by one of our pastors who also gave the talk. And what was particularly profound about it was that the pastor, Susie, is a single woman who would love to be married. And far from allowing her own unmet desire for a husband to distance her from those who are blessed with a partner, here she was, standing with them, investing in them, affirming their relationship, celebrating with them, and praying for them. That is profound. 